This is Adam. Adam is an ordinary guy on an extraordinary mission. Adam has been challenged to face down his fears, overcome his doubts, and set aside his worries. Adam is on a mission from God. You see, Adam has been assigned the task of loving his neighbor. You may be asking, what does loving my neighbor look like? What does it require of me and for how long? Thank you for joining us this week as we look beyond the lawn and learn together that love is a decision and not an emotion. Well, hey, I want to welcome you here today, whether you're tuning in uh, from our West Campus, Facebook Live, online in some other way, or you're back with us in the chapel, I want to welcome you. We are so glad that you're with us today, and uh, we are continuing this series that we kicked off last week called Won't You Be My Neighbor, where we have just been learning about what it looks like to love people in our life. Now, that seems pretty simple and basic and clear, but if we're honest with ourselves, it's a lot more difficult than it sounds, especially when we're we're called to love people who are just difficult to love and require a little bit more of us than others. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, if you're a sports fan, you know that there is a big difference between cheering on your team when they are the home team and when they are visiting, when they are the visitors, right? I mean, if you go to the place where, you know, it is their home, it's their stadium, their court, their, their gym, whatever that may be, I mean, there's nothing like it, right? I mean, the energy is going, and you're with the fans, and you've got chants, and you're all wearing the same color uh, shirts and, and pants, and, you know, you boo when the uh, ref makes a bad call, and then there's always that obnoxious fan who takes it one step further and yells something uh, at the ref, and... Uh, whenever my wife and I are at the game, she has to remind me, our, our kids are with us, okay? <laughs> be, be careful, you know? Now, when you are cheering on your team and they're the visitors, it, it couldn't be more different. You can't be as bold with how you cheer on your team. You probably aren't going to wear uh, certain colors because you're going to be treated differently. And, and whenever your team scores, you, you don't really want to celebrate because that just will bring about opposition from those around you. And I mean, the, the two couldn't be more different. Now, just because your environments may be different doesn't mean that you are going to not cheer for your team. It, it just might determine your approach, right? And you see, about the past three to five decades, about three to five decades ago, the, the church in America, it was, it was kind of like we had the home court advantage. Right, going to church and following Jesus was perceived as a good, noble thing. Christians had influence, and you had more credibility if you read the Bible, if you held to, towards, uh, held to biblical standards. We had influence for all intents and purposes, and, and we had the favor. Things were going our way, and, but then the game changed a little bit. And it's pretty difficult to put a finger on precisely when it happened, but, but it, there's no doubt that the, that the game changed a little bit. And it's almost like we're visitors in the midst of our culture because we have to be wise. We have to use discernment. And at times we can feel opposed. At times we can feel like, do, do we even belong here? And, and you almost get the sense from some that it would be a victory if Christianity just died out altogether. The church is perceived as narrow and unloving and judgmental at times. And, uh, you know, there's less credibility that, that some people have when you say that you're a Christian because of their perception or their experience in some church that they were a part of in the past and they rejected, they walked away from it. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is if that's true, how are we called to love? I mean, if it's true that we are kind of like a visitor in the midst of our culture, does our approach change whatsoever? 
I mean, how will you live in your neighborhood when it feels like you just don't fit in? Do you know what I'm talking about? And so that's what we've been running after in this series. And uh, we've been looking at this story called the Good Samaritan. It's perhaps one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. And, and that term, Good Samaritan, was really an oxymoron uh, 2,000 years ago because the Jewish people saw the Samaritan people as anything but good. All right, there was a lot of hostility and, and racism that, that was wedged between the two people groups, okay? And so the, uh, a, a prior generation, hundreds of years before, there, there was a segment of the Jewish population that actually intermarried with a bunch of non-Jews, and it produced this generation of, of what was eventually called the Samaritans. And so uh, the Jewish people, a traditional you know, purist, would have looked down upon the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. Right? They, they were deluding who they uh, really were, the people that they were, who they were called to represent, who they were called to be. And, and so throughout Scripture, you see this hostility and racism take place between the Samaritans and, and Jews. You even hear them referred to as uh, the people that, are, that have been demon-possessed. Okay, Now, we'd like to think that we're much different today. We've learned, but the truth is we're really no different today, Right? I mean, we take differences that occurred years and years ago and generations before us, and we allow it to wedge between the, the, the two of us, right? I mean, and I'll never forget when my wife and I first moved here over five, almost five years ago, uh, very quickly, you guys told us that there's this really big divide between the west side and the east side of Evansville, all right? And didn't really get it at first, and you know, I, I somewhat get it now, but it's a difference that occurred years and years ago, and, and that's why one of the stupidest, most biggest put-downs anybody could ever make is to say in public around October, around fall, hey, my family and I had a great time at the Newburgh Nut Club Food Festival. <laughs> yes, Rick, Kyle, our teaching pastor, said that two weeks ago from stage, and um, actually helped us out in a big way. We were having some space problems on our West Campus, and we haven't had space problems since Rick said that. <laughs> so if you came back at the West Campus, thank you, all right? And so you would never call a Samaritan 2,000 years ago good, and, and we need to understand that as we dive into the story today. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Luke. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible near you. Go ahead and grab that. That's our gift to you. Feel free to take it with you when you leave here today. All right, now Luke is towards the back fourth of your Bibles. It goes like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, okay? And uh, we're going to be in chapter 10. That's where the story of the Good Samaritan can be found. Luke just serves as a bio on the life of Jesus. It tells us a lot about who Christ was, how he lived. And Luke was this doctor that um, recorded a bunch of uh, eyewitness accounts on the life of Christ. And so one of the very first things that, that Jesus, we, we know that he said was that, uh, hey, I, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is close. And, and so one thing that we know about Jesus is that he didn't just come to this world to save us from our sin, although that was a big part of it. No, Jesus came to actually bring about his kingdom here on earth. And so when Jesus told this story, he, he was really popular because every city and town and village that he would go to, he was healing people's diseases. He was delivering people from demon, demons, and he was bringing dead people back to life. You wanted to be around Jesus. People would push others out of the way just to get near Jesus. Picture Black Friday at Walmart, okay? That's people's response to getting close to Jesus. They would trample over one another just to touch the hem of his garment. And so the question is, what, what was so special about Jesus? Why, why were people just dying to be near him? 
Well, because you see, when Jesus did these miracles, it, it kind of gave people the sense of hope that, you know what, maybe my life doesn't always have to be this way. Maybe there really is something better out there for me. And you see, those supernatural miracles was Jesus' way of demonstrating what life in his kingdom is, is all about. Now, what's really backwards and almost unbelievable for us to accept is that if you choose to follow Jesus, he's actually counting on you to help bring about his kingdom to earth. And so we talked about this last week, that God's kingdom, it, it's here, it, it's now, but it's not yet. It, it's not here in its fullness. It's not here in its complete form. And so our job as followers of Jesus, as citizens in this kingdom, is to bring about his kingdom everywhere it's been excluded in the past, where there's brokenness and darkness and sin and, and everything that follows that. That's where God's kingdom has yet to invade. You see, there's a terminology that, uh, use, that scholars sometimes use to describe this. It's called participatory grace. Now, that's really just a fancy word that means you aren't just saved from something, but you're actually saved for something as well. Grace is this unmerited favor of God upon your life that uh, you don't do anything to deserve it. You can't earn it whatsoever. But the moment that you believe that Jesus really is true and that he was who he said he was, you have grace. In that moment, you, are, you have been made right with your creator. You have peace with God. But it's not just something passive that we receive and then all of a sudden we're good to go. It's not some, you know, get out of jail free card. No, grace actually calls us to action. Participatory grace means that we can't just passively receive it, but, but it calls us to something. It calls us to change. And so grace calls us to acknowledge sin in our life and to repent, to turn the other way and say, okay, uh, uh, Jesus, show me a better way to live. And grace calls us as men to take our responsibility as husbands and fathers in the home seriously and to lead our wives and to lead our children and to accept responsibility for them even, even when it feels like we don't have any control. And grace calls us to, to see the people around us, not just as, as people or inconveniences, no, but to see people as individuals who have been made in the image of God, who are needing to know about this greater kingdom that's been made available. And so Jesus says, look, the best way to bring about the kingdom is through love. What does that look like? That's why he tells this story. Now pick up with me in um, uh, verse 30. Here's what Jesus said, beginning to tell this story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving this guy half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he, he passed by on the other side as well. And so here you have this guy lying on the side of the road who, who's been a victim. He didn't know that he was going to get jumped. He didn't wake up that morning and say, you know what, I would love to get robbed today. That's not what happened. And while he didn't sign up for this, if anyone considered him valuable enough to love, it would require sacrifice. It would cost them something. Now, here's the thing. It's impossible for us to be neutral when you know that someone needs something. You can't just be passive about it. You can't just be neutral about it. No, his circumstances were so painful to observe that Jesus said that the priest and the Levite, they didn't just step over the guy, they didn't just keep walking. No, they actually had to walk to the other side of the road because his circumstances were just too painful to observe. They, they didn't want to bother themselves that much by, by looking at what this guy had gone through. Elia Wiesel was an author and professor and also a Nazi concentration camp survivor. He's most famous, perhaps, for saying this. You've probably heard this quote before. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. 
It's like Jesus was using this story to tell his audience, hey, the opposite of love isn't isn't hatred. No, it's indifference. It's apathy. It's choosing not to care. Look at verse 33. Something happened. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, a more accurate way to describe that phrase, took pity, comes from the Greek word that we get compassion from. And, and so the word that Jesus actually used here is more than just a feeling. It's more than just an emotion that comes over you. No, to take pity means that, that you are moved with compassion, that it's not just this emotion you sit on, but, but it's leading you to something else. And, and so Jesus is saying, hey, look, this is what love looks like. Love is about action. It's about doing something, even if your emotions aren't always there, even when you don't feel like it. it it's going to cost you something. Jesus said. Now this is confusing for a lot of us because our culture's definition of love is very different, right? I mean, our our definition of love that we're trained to believe and that we've been taught in movies and books and magazines that we read is that it's all about what the other person can do for us. And and if they meet this expectation of some emotion or feeling, then we have fallen in love and then we will give them love in return. And yet Jesus is saying, look, it's not about that. That's not really what love is. True love isn't sexy. True love is about sacrifice. It's selfless. I don't know about you, but I have yet to pick up a Hallmark card around Valentine's Day that read something like this. Happy Valentine's Day. You couldn't be more difficult to love. (laughs) Right? Anybody picked up that card before? Hopefully you didn't actually give that card or buy it, right? I've never picked up a card that, that said, you know what? You are just the most insensitive jerk can't stand living with you, but I love you anyways. Like, no, nobody, nobody would buy that card. Why? Because our culture's definition of love is about romance. Here's, baby, what you do for me. Here's how you make me feel. Here's how my heart beats whenever I'm around you. That's not what love is, though. The Good Samaritan decided to act even when there was a part of him that just wanted to move on. If, if we wait, here's the thing, if we wait to love until we feel like loving, then those who need it most will miss out on love. Look at what he did in verse 34. What did love look like for this guy? Well, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that that you may have. And so the Samaritan's decision to love, it actually cost him something. You see, it's impossible to love without risking something. You see, the more you love somebody, the more you're actually putting yourself at risk. You you know that, right? Now, whenever Jesus told stories like this, uh, most of the time that they were illustrating something about God's kingdom, and, and you may not always be able to tell it right at first, but it was Jesus' way of connecting dots in in the first century minds of of those who are listening to him. Now, you may not always catch it because it's tough to sometimes read between the lines on this, but usually there's something in in every story that Jesus would tell that represents God, that represents himself, that represents Jesus, and represents his kingdom as well. And so whenever Jesus told stories, he, he would weave in ways to represent himself with a character or a situation in that story. And so if that's true, if that's true, when it comes to the story of the Good Samaritan, who symbolizes Jesus right here? Now, our first tendency is to think that, you know, Jesus, he's the Good Samaritan, right? But that's not it. Jesus isn't the priest or the Levite who avoided the victim. He's not the robbers or or the innkeepers. And so you know what? That only leaves us with one other person. 
that Jesus was the guy who was left for dead on the side of the road. What? Now, in a way, hang with me on this, in a way, this story was a foreshadowing of what would happen when Jesus went to the cross. He's basically telling his audience, although they didn't really get it at the time, he was basically saying, hey, look, a day is coming, a day is quickly approaching when I will be left for dead, I'll be thrown to the side of the road, nobody's gonna intervene, nobody's gonna help me, and ironically, I'm gonna die. Why? Because the religious people rejected me. They refused to be inconvenienced. You see, Jesus is so serious about this whole loving people around us thing because loving them, loving them means loving him. It's like Jesus illustrates his love for us in the story of the Good Samaritan like this. You and I, we were naively headed down the road of life. We didn't know what our future was going to hold. But then all of a sudden, we became a victim of a circumstance. We got hijacked by life, and, and we were just moments away from death. We were moments away from blowing up our life. And doesn't that describe some of our stories, by the way? But then at the last minute, Jesus, he stepped in our place. He died for us, which has given us a second chance at life. And if that's how much Jesus loves you, and if that's how much Jesus loves me and and your neighbors, then how much do we have to hate someone to keep that love from them? They may not always show it, but each person has been made in the image of God. See, we as a church, we want to care about our blocks, our streets, our college campuses, our neighborhoods, our retirement homes, our, uh, our neighborhoods. Why? Because they are full of people who need to be reminded that they've been made in the image of God, that their past doesn't have to define them any longer. Author Tim Keller says it like this. He says, cities have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. And so the moment we become citizens in God's kingdom, we're responsible to push against the darkness where his kingdom has previously been excluded before, and we do this by loving people. Although it requires sacrifice, although it requires time, and it costs us a lot, our neighbors are worth it because they have been been created in the image of God. And so let me say it like this, okay? Let me say it like this. The more we love like Jesus in our neighborhoods, the more our neighborhoods will look like God's kingdom. All right, the, the, the more we love like Jesus in our neighborhoods, the more our neighborhoods will look like God's kingdom. Now, this, this sounds really great, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you think to yourself, yay, and maybe it's inspirational, and maybe it evokes some emotions in you. And you know what? It's one thing to stand up here and teach this and to say this, but it's something completely different to actually, to actually begin living it out, right? It's one thing to talk about love, but it's another to actually to live love and And so what I want to do is just ask ourselves three questions to analyze how well are we doing at this. Okay, let's get really practical. Let's take what Jesus said and and put some wheels on it and and apply it to our life. So the first question I have for you goes like this. Would you rather build a friend, build build a a friend's? Anybody heard? What's a friend's? I don't know. (laughs) Would you rather build a fence or a bridge with your neighbor? Would you rather build a fence or a bridge with your neighbor. Now, I'm not talking about an actual physical fence, okay? Pretty sure Jesus could care less about how good your backyard looks and whether or not you get that fence or wooden or plastic or anything like that. No, this question is about how are you looking for ways to engage people around you? Do you see your neighbors as as an intrusion, as an inconvenience, or do you see your neighbors as people who, who need to be loved? Last weekend, we challenged all of you to begin taking some strides and, and taking some steps in this area by 
just getting to know your neighbor's names. And uh, there, there are those little cards out in the lobby where you can fill out a grid where uh, in the middle of that card is your house. And there are eight little boxes around it. And we just want to encourage you to fill in those boxes as you get to know your neighbor's names in, in the next week or so. And the reason why we are doing this, we're challenging you to do this, is because it's really hard for us to love people if we don't know their name, Right? And you see, you may think, well, that's not that big of a deal, but knowing someone's name, it, it's always, it's never a big deal until somebody calls you the wrong name, right? Or somebody forgets your name. And if you don't think that knowing someone's name is really a big deal, I challenge, go home today and accidentally call your spouse by your ex's name. Okay, see how that goes over, Right? No, something greater, something bigger is communicated whenever we actually take the time to get to know someone's name. It, it basically says to the other person, hey, I, I care that much about you that I am, I'm remembering your name. Why? Because you're, you're valuable. You've been made in the image of God. On Tuesday this past week, I ran into someone uh, from our church, and she was just really open and honest with me. She said, you know, Patrick, I've been living in my home for 18 years. I've lived on my street for 18 years, and and I don't know any of my neighbor's names. And I appreciated her honesty and vulnerability. And you know what? You've got to start somewhere. You can't change the past, but you can change what the future looks like. And this is a challenge for us to simply build relationships. And the best way for us to love the people around us is not by talking about polarizing topics right at first. Okay, this is just a, this is free. Okay, this is a tip. You might want to write this down. Don't build a relationship by talking about something really polarizing at first, political views or anything like that, okay? Now, if your neighbor doesn't go to church or isn't a Christian, it's probably not wise to talk about some deep, important spiritual matter right away, sometimes using weird words, mystical language, or talking about your morals and convictions only can drive people away and, and drive them even further away. Do you know why? Because they don't care. They don't. But you know what the thing they do care about? They do care about how much you genuinely care about them. I imagine you're out in your yard and you're raking leaves and out of the corner of your left eye, you see two guys hop off their bikes wearing suits and they make their way towards you and they've got some information in their hands and it becomes pretty obvious rather quickly that they are Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or some other, uh, from some other religious group. And, and so what, do you, what, what is your first reaction whenever you see uh, somebody heading towards your house like that? Well, you can either ignore them, you can either run the other way, or you can actually engage with them in dialogue and be stuck in a conversation for the next hour or so, right? And I gotta tell you what I would do. I, I personally, my first tendency when that happens is, is to lock the door. Kids, keep it down. We're not here right now, you know? Be quiet, would you? And, uh, and not answer the door, why? Well, because I don't, there's no offense to them, but I, I don't know them, right? And let me just kind of, Paint this picture for you. I love talking about spiritual matters. I've been following Jesus for years. I've dedicated my entire life uh, to talking with people about deep spiritual matters. And, and so it's nothing to do with how much I love Jesus. And, and so let me just ask this. If, if somebody like me, if, if I don't want to necessarily have a conversation like that with somebody that I've never met before, then, then why would our neighbors want to do that? They, they don't. And you see, the way that we connect with people around us is to speak to them in a way that they can understand. Well, what does that look like? Well, the universal language to connect with anybody is through love. 
It's wired into every strand of our DNA inside of every person. And believe it or not, believe it or not, this, is, this was Jesus' approach. The people that he loved, that loved to hang around him the most were those who lived the messiest lives. Here's the thing that Jesus knew. Look, talking about too much too soon would limit his opportunities to love those who needed it most. Therefore, Jesus pursued common ground with the lost and broken. He did this even before he even got to some deep spiritual matter. Check out what Jesus says about himself in Luke chapter 7. He's being criticized by the religious leaders. And so here's what Jesus said. He said, look, for this John the Baptist, my cousin, came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon, the son of man. Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, look, me... I've come eating and, and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus was not a glutton. He, he was not a drunkard. But this just shows us how, how much his cost involved, how much cost is involved if we choose to live this way. Jesus knew that, that he could choose to, to build a bridge with someone by having a glass of wine, and then the risk was that maybe the religious leaders would, would take it one step further and call him a drunkard and start spreading rumors about him, and he's gone insane. And so Jesus had a choice to make whenever he did this. He could associate with sinners and risk his reputation in his community, or he could earn the respect of the religious community by avoiding the lost and broken people that might tarnish his reputation. But Jesus couldn't do both. And so when it came down to it, you know what Jesus always did? He always chose to build bridges with people even if that meant that his appearance, his reputation, or even his perceived character was at stake. If Jesus didn't eat with sinners and tax collectors, I'd still be lost and so would you. So how far are you willing to go to build bridges with people? You may be the closest that your neighbors ever get to seeing what the kingdom of God is all about. Here's the second question. It goes along with this. Do you know the difference between loving people and fixing people? You know the difference between loving people and fixing people? Our, our neighbors distance themselves whenever they sense that our real agenda is to correct them, instruct them, teach them, or fix them. Now, one of the most harmful things that we can do is, is to expect people who don't follow Jesus to live like they do follow Jesus. But if we can't even fix ourselves, if I can't fix Patrick, then what makes me think that I have the ability to fix the person who lives beside me? You see, the reality is every behavior, every thing that is behind a habit that you want to try to fix or control in people, there's a story behind it. There's a reason for it. About two weeks ago, I uh, had dinner with a couple area local pastors, and we were simply discussing the uh, Indiana's foster care crisis situation, and there was a national leader who had been brought in to talk about this, and uh, this guy by the name of Brian who had flown in to talk with us about this was uh, actually uh, a foster parent himself. And, and he talks about how it's really messy and, you know, you get kids that uh, talk differently and act irrationally and they, they act poorly and they have bad behavior. But he said something during that dinner that really, it really stuck with me. He said, you know what, there's no such thing as bad kids. They're just kids who have experienced trauma. I did a little bit of research. Trauma is actually the psychological term used to describe what a child sees or experiences at a very young age. And it may have happened years ago. It may have happened five, six, seven years ago. But that memory, that victimization of, of where they were, they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Someone did that to them. And, and it's almost as if every day they wake up, it's this close to them. It's so real. It, it follows them everywhere they go. And so... 
There's a reason why they act that way. There's no such thing as bad kids. They're just kids who have experienced trauma. Everybody's fighting a battle, right? You don't know the struggle that your neighbors are going through right now. And so maybe you get you know, really ticked off. He doesn't wave back at you whenever you drive down the street. He just seems very uh, impersonal. But I don't know. What, what if right now he's struggling with depression? You know, you, you think, oh, I just can't stand talking to her, getting wrapped up in conversation because it's like, there goes an hour of my day. She wants to talk to me about her new cat, her new perfume, and blah, 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 and this and that, and I just can't get away from her. But what if she has no more family members left that are living, and, and you're her only source of fellowship, and she's the, you're the only person that maybe she sees and talks to throughout the day, and... I know that your neighbors, they throw wild parties and they stay up late at night and they're an inconvenience and you just can't stand. You, I mean, where are their parents? Why in the world would they allow their kids to be drinking like that? And, and what if those kids, that's the only thing they know to do to numb themselves to the pain of rehashing a sexual abuse that triggers, is triggered in their mind over and over and over again. Everybody's fighting a battle. Everybody's going through something. And typically the thing that keeps us from loving like Jesus is confusing a false version of, of what love really is. And so sometimes we might lo- uh, our love might go like this. I love you if, right? I, I will love my neighbor if he actually learns how to park, not in front of my house. I, I will love my neighbor if he apologizes me for just berating me for not knowing where the property line was. I'll love my neighbor if you fill in the blank here. And, and really, th- this version of love isn't really love because it's conditional. It's based upon the other person, the other party, meeting a certain demand, meeting a certain need or a want of yours. And it's a self-centered approach to, to love. And so maybe you don't really identify with I love you if, but you can identify with this. I, I love you because. What does this look like? Well, this isn't always a, a bad approach to take. In fact, uh, in marriage, oftentimes, it, it's very wise to say, hey, here's what I love about you. I love you because of this or because of that. But uh, I'll never forget, early on in my marriage, I learned that um, this was actually a really good way for me to speak into what I wanted, what my expectations. And so I told Savannah after our honeymoon, hey, I, I love you because you let me sleep in every Saturday on my day off. I love you because you let me have my guy friends over four nights a week. I love you because you let me buy a new car. You know, you fill in the blank. And, and really, that was my way of kind of, uh, um, of getting what I wanted. And I love you because it's your way of kind of reinforcing some expectation that you may have upon that other person. And so there's I love you if, I love you because, but then Jesus says, I love you anyways. I love you regardless. This isn't a conditional kind of love. This isn't a love that says you got to meet this demand, you got to do this. No, and Jesus says, look, I, I love you, I love you in spite of you. I love you in spite of you. Jesus didn't love us in an if or because kind of way. He loved us anyways. He loved us in, in, spite, in spite of us. It has nothing to do with the other person ever responding, thanking you, or serving you in return. It's a more realistic love because the closer you get to people, the more you see just how messed up people really are. And that includes us as well. Choosing to love people is always a risk because it's a call for us to deny what we want for the sake of other people. Here's the last question. It goes like this. What can you stop doing so you can start loving? 
All right, what can you stop doing so you can start loving? You see, love requires time. This may be the biggest sacrifice you'll make if you actually choose to love like Jesus. All of us live really busy, chaotic lives where we're constantly on the run. Part of this is our culture, and you know what? It, it may never change, but I'd be willing to bet that most of us here, most of us at West, most of us tuning in on Facebook right now, we don't feel like that, that we run our schedules. We, we kind of are at this place in our life where we feel like our schedules run us. I mean, there's always that pressure to head to the next meeting, go, go to the next appointment, head to the next parent-teacher conference, small group, dinner, next practice. And we just don't have time to love very well, do we? And, and if you're like me, opportunities to talk to the person I live beside, it, it can seem like more as an interruption than it, than it is an opportunity. But is there a way for you maybe to look at your calendar and to stop doing something so that you can start loving? And let me just say, I get it that this may not be very practical for you. You're a single parent. Life is chaotic. You're just trying to make ends meet. Maybe you're physically bound to your home right now. Whatever your circumstance is, what if you simply identified some ways not to do anything extra, not, not to carve out more time, but I'd be willing to bet that you do rub shoulders with the same people over and over and over again throughout your day. What would it look like for you to just simply love the people that you interact with on a daily basis. You see, sometimes the smallest things that we do, it can mean the most to people and it can have the greatest, most significant impact. Several months ago, I was um, at a restaurant and I ran in pretty quickly to grab a bite to eat. I had to get back to church because I had a meeting and so I ran into this restaurant Grabbed my lunch, sat down, ate the lunch pretty quickly. And uh, when I did that, I noticed somebody from our church in there and made small talk with her for a little while. And uh, before I left, I thought, you know what, I'm going to buy her lunch. And so I just went up to the cash register, purchased her lunch, and went on, went on with my day. Didn't, didn't think anything of it. A couple of days later, her, a couple of her friends came up to me after, I think it was 1045 service, and they said, you know, I, I heard you bought so-and-so's lunch the other day, and, and that, was, that was really nice of you. you you'll, never know, you'll never know how much that meant to her. I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? And her friends proceeded to tell me, you know what? She, she was actually planning to take her life that day. And if you wouldn't have paid for her lunch, she would have continued to believe in the lie that she wasn't worth living another day. It's awkward for me to tell you that story because it's like, I'm the hero of the story. But if I can be honest with you, I almost didn't do it. I didn't hear some voice from heaven. I didn't feel some nudge, nothing like that, but, but I almost didn't do it. In fact, if there was one or two more people in front of the cash register, I was in such a hurry, I was in such a rush, it, I wouldn't have done it. I would have just gone on and had it just gone to the next meeting, what, what would have happened? This is something you can do. This is something we can all do. Sometimes the smallest things can mean the most significant to people who, who need it most. And so what's one step you can take doing this this week? What is one small act of love that you can do to show somebody simply just how valuable they are in, in, the, eyes of, in the eyes of God? And if it took just a couple dollars to remind some poor girl how valuable and worthwhile she really is, you know what, I'm gonna do it every time. It's not that big of a deal. And so what's the takeaway with all this? 
Well, if you haven't picked up one of those neighborhood grids, uh, one of those neighborhood cards, I, I want you to, to do that as you leave today and, and just begin filling out, okay, he, here's who lives to our left, or here's who lives in the apartment below us, or here who lives in the dorm room beside me, and, and just begin filling it out. Get to know names around you. Why? Again, it's hard to love people if you, if you don't know their name. But, but here's something really practical I want to challenge us all with. Okay, we've got the best opportunity before us this week to actually get to know our neighbors. We've got Halloween coming up, all right? Yes, I said it. We've got Halloween coming up, and this is the time when you don't need to go to your neighbors. Your neighbors actually come to you. And so what would it look like for you to actually be present, to be out on your porch, to show hospitality, and then use Halloween, leverage Halloween as a way to get to know your neighbors' names, as a way to to love on them. And so here are just some really practical ideas that we've come up with and that I've heard some of you uh, come up with. What if you had a fire pit going out in your driveway? What if you uh, had maybe a grill out in your driveway and you just grilled some hot dogs or hamburgers for uh, people who were uh, trick-or-treating or their kids were trick-or-treating? I mean, uh, what if you had like a hot chocolate stand, something like that? Just simply being present and, and being there will go a long way. Now, don't charge people for those things, <laughs> all right? That's not the point, okay? And if you hand out candy, don't be that house that's like one raisin per kid, Yeah, Jesus is not honored by that, all right? But I gotta be honest with you, leaving your porch light off, that doesn't do much for the kingdom. But what does do a lot for the kingdom is if you actually choose to be the light in the midst of darkness when you step outside your house. And so that's what Jesus would do, and I think that's what he's calling us to do. Get to know our neighbors, get to know our neighborhoods. No agenda other than, you know what? I'm called to love, I've been loved by my God, and I'm called to pass on that love to you. It's a decision that we make, not an emotion that we feel. All right, let's pray. God, you've loved us in spite of us. And um, I know that sometimes it can be really difficult for us to love difficult people in our life. And we've talked a lot about that as a church lately. And I know you're teaching me a lot of things. And above all else, would you just continue to remind us that that we were that guy lying on the side of the road and at the last second you you stepped in, you took our place you absorbed the blows for us you you took on the hits you you were crucified, you died so that we could have a second shot so we could have a second chance and we could live forever with you and and you came to establish this kingdom, it's here but it's not here yet and and this kingdom grows, it expands, it, it continues as we love other people and so Father Would you just help us to do that? May we be a church, may we be an army. And on the night of Halloween, we go out and we are the light in the midst of a lot of darkness. Our community is counting on us. Our neighborhoods are counting on us. Our city needs us, Lord Jesus. This is a responsibility that we have to embrace. Would you help us just to be faithful with that? We thank you for the cross. It all goes back to that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.